Welcome to episode 41 of the Chew In Your Boot podcast and we've got an incredible episode today as Jim Maxwell joins us. Jim has been a sports commentator and journalist and is well known as the voice of Australian cricket on radio for the best part of the last 50 years. It's safe to say this is one of our best episodes yet. We had a great chat and it was very special to hear from a very wise and intelligent man along with his cricketing knowledge. So we really hope you enjoy this one. Jim, welcome to the Chew and Your Boot podcast. Thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure. There's no Chewy on my boot at the moment, but <laughs> I have someone's boot and they're getting out there and getting stuck into it despite the uh, coronavirus, which is a bit of a nuisance, isn't it? Exactly right. Well, we'll quickly touch on that. How are you going and how have you managed the whole isolation period? Oh, there's always something to do. Uh, <laughs> the one... Um, the, the, the one sort of a uh, crime you can commit if you're uh, the kind of person that I am who's um, addicted to the punt is um, follow the horses yeah. or the greyhounds or whatever. But I mean, it's the one thing that's kept going during this uh, pandemic is horse racing. They don't seem to be worried about it. Yeah. So um, I have an interest in a few horses and... Uh, you know, I have a bit of an indulgence. I, some people play crosswords or do Sudoku. I, I do horses. So that's been helpful during um, hibernation. And um, I don't know, just take the dog for a walk or, you know, whistle a tune to the budgies. They don't say much. Um, I'm trying to get them to mate, but the, the, the lady's not interested in the bloke or something. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> so that's going on in the background and then there's um you know there's always some friends who flop around it's not too bad in new south wales and sydney you can um you know socialize the social distancing as they call it is not too restrictive so life churns along and um at, at this stage of um my sporting life uh, there's not much cricket on, that's for sure. So um, until that happens, uh, I'm I'm here in the cave, chatting to you Absolutely. guys. Absolutely. Well, take us back to the start, and can you let us know about your earliest memories and where you formed your love for sport and cricket? Oh God. Um, it was. Uh, it's probably just you know playing with the kids, neighbours on the street. Um, if I go back far enough um, and it was you know just riding around on bikes playing cowboys and Indians down the parks just being involved and then you know a football came out and started kicking that around and, uh, then there was a cricket ball there weren't many cars in our street so you could play out in the street and then we used to play because there were a few cars, uh, got rid of the cricket ball and got a tennis ball and and cut one side down and put it in a bucket of water so it wasn't too soft and bouncy. And that simulated uh, the speed of a, a ball off of 18 yards at any rate. So, yeah. And my father played a bit of cricket and I used to go along with him to watch him play. And then he dragged me out to the cricket ground years ago and uh, until I was about uh, 10, I suppose, I really didn't take much interest in what was going on. You know, kids that age are more interested in, well, in those days, uh, collecting soft drink bottles. If you got four bottles, you got one full one when you took it up to the little kiosk there, the SCD. So, um, but gradually it, it kind of got to me a bit and I started playing uh, more than... Yeah, just a, a, occasionally I started to think about what was going on in this game. And it grew from, from that, I suppose. And, um, well, um, the, the, the business of, of broadcasting actually grew from that while I was at school because uh, I, I think I was about 14 and I started writing a, um, a cricket magazine called The Cricket Chronicle. And yep. I used to have a crossword and a quiz. So you'd pay, I'm going back a fair bit, you used to pay sixpence to buy this thing. And you got, uh, I think, 
sixpence if you either got the quiz or the crossword. And you know, my mother used to type it out and an hour and all that stuff. So that that was the start of um, perhaps developing an interest beyond just being a fan and, and, and a, uh, a participant in the game of cricket to where things eventually ended up, yeah. And you toured with an Australian old collegians cricket team in 1972. Did you ever think you were a chance to maybe play professionally? <laughs> no, I was, uh, I was never, never good enough. Um, I faced some good bowlers on that too. I, I have to say, I even hit one, one of them, a bloke called Don Shepherd, who played for Glamorgan. He was in his twilight years then. We're playing at Swansea, actually, where Sobers hit those six sixes. And I hit him for two sixes. But um, and the, my, my cricket was more about trying to hit, hit the ball with bloody teeth picks in those days yeah. uh, than hang around and, and, and wait to see what happened. And we had a lot of very good cricketers in, in that team. We played 90 matches in four months, and mainly in uh, the UK, but we played in Honolulu. United States, Bermuda, we played in Geneva at the other end and then I went back when they came home and played some club cricket at Hampstead. Um, but it was just an extraordinary time for you know, a 21 year old to be in the company of a lot of very experienced cricketers. You know, guys, guys that were old enough to be my father who were very, still very good cricketers. Um, and a lot of guys near my age, but you know, I was I was probably the yes, I would have been the youngest in the team. So it was a bit of an eye opener. And um, I came home with all sorts of thoughts about what I was going to do and everything else. And um, my mother handed me this um, cutting from the paper when I got home and said, You remember this? Last time it came up, you applied for the job in the ABC as a trainee. Well, I cut this out of the paper the other day. So six months later, you know, I got the job. So I was uh, I was lucky. You know, right place, right time, all of that stuff. Yeah, very lucky. And, and you mentioned that. What were those first years as a trainee like? Well, my, I've still got a liver. And um, I'm not sure how. Uh, I have to tell you, there was a big boys club, very strong social element. Lunchtime every day was at the pub. And... Uh, and the trainees, you know, listen. If you you were told, if you don't listen, you'll never learn. And there was Norman May, Alan McGilvray, Jeff Marnie, Alan Marks. And there was a there's a list of stars through the week. And then on Saturdays, after they did the sports program, with Reg Gasnier, Trevor Allen, Kevin Ryan, rolling along in there. Oh, there were some great characters and people who'd had a, a lot of experience of so many different things. Um, but they were very thirsty people. And uh, I, I shouldn't um, encourage this, but um, it, it was a case, if you're going to have a drink, get home fast. So um, and that's what a few of us did. And probably not until midnight. So we shouldn't have been behind the wheel of a car. <laughs> but uh, that's how it was in those days. Um, and somehow we survived. But yeah, the, the, the education was around uh, the social gatherings at the pub, mainly. The, um, uh, Lord Dudley was Alan McGilvray's um, home pub. And uh, we, we all, Gordon Bray, um, Bob Vincent, Peter Longman, Roger Wills, uh, Drew Morford, Peter Mears, oh, lots of terrific people in those days. All, all had some experience of being on the wrong end of uh, a day and a night with McGilbray. He was unbeatable, really, in every possible way. Um, yeah. Because he'd come up smoking his fags the next morning over a cholesterol banquet and they just sounded the same on the radio every day. And we, we struggled to keep up with that. He, he was amazingly resilient, amazing. And you're well known for your unique style as a commentator of cricket and your sense of humour, which we've witnessed on the show already. Um, is this something that comes naturally for you or did you develop it over time and did you think it would come so iconic? Uh, 
confidence is a big thing in life in so many things you do and uh, you have to remember that uh, when I started in the ABC I was what 22 um, most of the experienced broadcasters were well as I say they're old enough to be my father a lot of them so um, it was a bit intimidating so it took a while to de develop the confidence and the style and and perhaps a the kind of layback approach that um, has been more evident in the last 20, 20 years. You also need to remember that, that uh, the, the business of sports broadcasting was much more formal, certainly from an ABC perspective in those days. We were, we were drilled to um, you know, be accurate, be on top of it all, uh, don't be self-indulgent, all of this. So there wasn't a lot of um, personality about what we did on, on air, perhaps more off air than on air, but uh, yeah. And eventually that got broken down, like so many things changed in society with the behavior of people. And um, probably one of the um, more important contributors to making it more conversational and informal was uh, Kerry O'Keefe. Uh, without doubt, is, a, is the, the quickest wit I've ever ever worked with, and uh, yeah, I miss him on the radio. Actually, I know he's still going on TV and enjoying himself and, and entertaining everyone with his um, uh, knowledge and analysis. He loves he loves analysis. So yeah, um, things changed over a period of time, but it, it, it's like anything else. Once you, once you get confident, you got to be careful that um, you don't put more than a foot in your mouth. But to do this job well, I, I, mean, I really believe you need to have a crack at putting your foot in your mouth. Um, because like anything else in life, you've got to make a few mistakes before you get it right. And even if you get it wrong in broadcasting, what did he say? I missed that. It's gone. <laughs> Move on. So I'm sometimes glad that it's the um, spoken word and not the written word. Yeah. And just on Kerry O'Keefe, I think I can remember his last time on radio with ABC. It was the Sydney Test match in 2013-14. Mm. Um, Australia yep. had just won the Ashes 5-0. Must have been an mm. incredible time to be on radio with everything surrounding that. Well, the more it went with Kerry, the more incredible it got because I think as a, a co-broadcaster, uh, we really didn't know what he might come up with. And as a listener, you know, that, that's a good thing to have, isn't it? Um, it's, it's like, you know, to be, to be very, a very good comedian uh, who's got a natural wit. And uh, Kerry's got plenty of that. But um, I, as I say, I don't think I've, I've ever worked with anyone who had uh, his power of observation of the game and all the stuff that was around it. Um, so, yeah, he, he humanised it. Uh, and um, let's face it, crick, cricket lends itself to telling a story or telling a lot of stories because of the, the, the nature of the, of the game. And there was lots of opportunity for reflection and um, nostalgia and, and the rest of it because unlike football where every time you think you want to say something about that, oh, look out, we're here now, we've moved on. So, which is also handy in cricket because if it gets out of, out of order with the person next door, you can always come back to the game and you move on. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Kerry, Kerry made a big impact, as did Peter Roebuck in, in a different way because he was more of an intellect and more serious. Um, but he also offered a, a, a range of opinions about a lot of stuff other than cricket, um, which, you know, added to the, the quality of the broadcast, I think, uh, such as the nature of radio. You can do that. So, yeah. It, there it is. It's been great. It's been great, op, you know, opportunity, experience to work with so many of these people, um, and in those two, I, I single out, but there are plenty of others who have made it 
worthwhile and hopefully worthwhile for the audience to listen to it. Yeah. And you've covered a number of sports in your time as well as Olympic Games. How were these experiences and how do they differ to cricket commentary? Mm. Ah, now, well, I did a lot of rugby league on radio and for a while on TV, rugby union on uh, TV for about 14 years. I did a lot of rugby on radio, did some golf tournaments on, on TV. Um, but the Olympic Games, that was tricky because uh, I did hockey, a game I'd never played and I didn't really un understand. I was in the obvious uh, business of manoeuvring a missile to a certain place so you could score. So I was fortunate enough to... Um, 1992 was the first time I did before Barcelona to go up in Queensland with the Australian team into their camp. And uh, they were very, very generous people, men and, 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 and women. Um, as, as Rick Charlesworth said when he took over the um, women's team and there was an idiot called Julian O'Neill playing rugby league it was getting paid a ridiculous amount of money, but you know, he, he he pissed it all up and carried on. It was a lunatic. And I remember Rick saying, What they are paying that bloke is more than enough money to fund the whole of the women's hockey program. So it, it was the great amateur sport and still is to a large extent, although you know it's it's professional too. But um it only ever stuck its head up at the Olympics and, you know, World Cups and things. But uh, the Olympics was a big deal in men's and women's hockey. And, um, you know, I, look, again, it was a wonderful experience to be with people uh, I, I'd never had any contact with. And I developed some, some good friendships out of that, particularly at Barcelona where it was boiling hot in the middle of the day. The tournament was up on... Um, football fields in Terrassa, about an hour and a half out of um, Barcelona. And because it was so hot, you had the siesta. So we used, to, we used to go to the Pink Panther Cafe in Terrassa for lunch, the TV and the radio guys. And that was a, a, a wonderful opportunity to um, have a chat and, and relax. I mean, it's as much the, the social get together as the experience of watching sport that uh, is important in the context of uh, in you know in, in enjoying and enriching your life I guess so that's why that those Olympic experiences uh, were so good I did and then 96 the the coca-cola games in Atlanta that was the cheap games that's for sure they didn't spend much on that and um, and Alison Annan wow what a player when Australia won gold there the Powell sisters and Alison Annan brilliant and then, of course, we capped it off in Sydney 2000. So I, I did those three Olympics and a few Commonwealth Games. In fact, cricket for the Commonwealth Games in 1998, the only time they've ever had it in uh, Kuala Lumpur. It's a good trivia question. Name me Australian bowler who took a hat-trick at the Commonwealth Games. Do you know Any the answer? Player? No. No? Spinner. Left-arm spinner. Only played one day cricket, didn't play tests. South Australia? Gee, you're struggling. When was no, this? This is 1998, did you say? Yep. Um, you want me to put you out of your misery? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brad Young oh, against okay. New Zealand. Remember him? The bloke who impaled himself on the advertising hoarding at the SCG and did his knee. Oh, yeah. Day. And after that, he was not quite the same. So, yeah. And the other trivia question, of course, who, who won the gold medal in 1998 in the um, the men's cricket? I'd hope it was us. We were in the final. We didn't win. Jeez. You're testing us. There you go. You see, everyone forgets. Yeah, um, we weren't alive. Who, who was, come on, you young guys should remember this. Um, no, you probably shouldn't. It's 22 years ago. You, yeah, it's a bit before our yeah. time. You've been in, in the nappies or something. Yes, it was South Africa. Oh, South okay. Africa beat Australia in the final. There you go. Yeah. 
All right. Sorry, you're doing the interview on this. <laughs> no, it's okay. That's fine. A few loose ones around. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you've been editor of an ABC cricket book since 1988 and written a number of them yourself. Um, what yep. is it to you that you love about writing so much? Uh, I don't love it that much, to be quite honest with you. Um, I'm far more at ease doing this. But, uh, well, it, it, it's it's a way of expressing yourself and getting an opinion across. And I suppose for me, more these days, it's done in bullet form on social media with tweeting, which is, is good fun <laughs> to keep into you know, conversation and up with people. The task of writing, oh, it's, it's irksome. But um, it's a look for me. It's a challenge. Um, my when I was at school, um, most of the teachers who looked after me or tried to reckon I was bloody hopeless in, in English. So it probably stuck in my craw over a period of time, and I, I tried to work on it. And I still don't think I'm a particularly good writer uh, in construction and everything else, but. I can sort of get the ideas down on the page and, and make it work. And uh, that that was a, a very challenging but enriching experience because I took over from uh, Alan McGilvray as the editor of the ABC Cricket Book magazine, as they call it now, uh, after he re retired. And um, I seem to be stuck with it now. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to get you know, someone at some point to succeed me from in doing it, but uh, we haven't got to that point as yet. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not um, dismiss, dismissing the business of writing, but broadcasting is a, a lot easier f for me than writing. And, and in fact, um, some years ago, I used to do quite a bit of stuff for the BBC, and, and they were, you know, 30 seconds, please, 40 seconds. And I taught myself with a stopwatch or a watch just to talk at the watch for 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 50 seconds, right? So beginning, content, end, bang. And it was a very effective discipline. So that's another reason probably why I'm happier just summing it up. Like, you know, a blast to camera for news when you needed to do it um, than writing. But... Um, it's all part of the all-round craft, I suppose. Uh, but let's face it, I was employed as a specialist trainee sport more because uh, they thought um, I had a voice that could be useful in, in putting um, the coverage of sport across effectively. And um, the, the rest of it was, was a kind of add-on, a, a bit like those. I mean, you also have to remember in those early days, uh, ABC did a lot of TV sport, and now they did none. And so we had to be all, all around it. So, you know, in, in a day, you might be starting here at the SCG doing a Sheffield Shield game, and then in the evening, over you have to go over the bridge to Gore Hill and do stuff on TV news or do Sports View or Friday nights where you used to have a sporting program. Um, you know, there, was a, there was a lot more um, meat on the bone in those days than today, where yes, uh, Grandstand produces a good product, but the, the boys and girls don't get the chance to uh, cut the cloth, you know, with the, the film edit and video and all that stuff. And it, that's old time religion too. Um, now it's, <laughs> now your bread's buttered. Auto cue, Christ, I never had auto cue in those days. That's why James <laughs> Dibble was such a sensational newsreader because he could look, look down and memorise and then bang. Um, and those skills, are, well, they're not necessary today. They make it easy. Yeah. So there we go, boys. Around and round. What's, what's next on the menu here? We've got an interesting one here. Um, you provided commentary in the early 2000s for the EA Sports cricket video oh, games <clears throat> alongside Richie Bennard. Can you tell us a bit about this, which is something I imagine you never thought you would have been doing, especially early in your career. And can you also tell us a bit about the great man, Richie? Now, where do I start? Uh, now, you have to re remember, yes, if you 
watch the EA Sport game, you hear our voices. But in fact, um, he did his bit somewhere in England and I did my bit somewhere in a little studio out at Canterbury. Uh, I, I remember knocking the whole thing off in about three hours. And uh, it, was a, it was a lot of repetition, but you had to get the timing right and so on. Um, so it, it wasn't a natural commentary liaison. Nothing like it. In fact, um, I, I have to say, I've never actually worked with Richie other than interviewing him and spending some good time with him, particularly over the last part of his life when he was um, 12th man for the primary club, of which I'm still the president, which is an organisation that raises funds um, for, the, for the disabled, sporting equipment for the disabled. And um, he, he, was, he was good value. And I, I look, I've done a number of interviews with Richie, not for the ABC, just for other people. I did one uh, memorable day at Lords before, was that 2013 series, I think, maybe in 2009. It all sort of goes through the brain. But um, yeah, he's a delightful fellow. And what. What Richie was, was good at, apart from a subtle sense of humour, was his timing, uh, which is lost today because you've got three commentators there and everyone wants to get their two bobs worth. But um, many people would say Richie understood what television commentary was about, and which to a large extent is about saying nothing because the atmosphere will let the occasion run. And he was, he was by far the best at that. Um, and that was an education from the BBC from about the time he was going to retire. And uh, it, it's, hard, it, it's hard to um, think about this, but you realise that um, from the time he retired in 1963, worked for the BBC in England every summer, way through until... Oh, 2005, six. right through that period, um, up until the start of World Series, he never worked on television commentary in Australia. It's, it's still, to me, one of the more bizarre decisions um, the ABC made in that period when it had the rights up until the time Packet came on the scene. Uh, that uh, They didn't have Richie working for them. Maybe, maybe he was asking too much money, I don't know. But um, even at that, that point, he was, he was clearly the old suprema uh, of, of cricket broadcasting. And they should have had him on, but it never happened. And my, my first memory, because uh, I, I watched him when I was a youngster, of interviewing, talking to him, was I, I did a program in 1975, um, six series we won five one and i, I did a, a historical program on the history of australia west indies cricket and he came into the the studio and we conducted fairly formal interview so um he just he just had a grasp if if you want to listen to a, a bit of great historical uh stuff you should dig out benno and Worrell at the end of the 60-61 series when Bradman presented with the crowd packed there at the end of that amazing test match, the Frank Worrell Trophy. Um, and the response from the crowd when Frank Worrell spoke was uh, extraordinary. They all sang, but he's a jolly good fellow. He's, yeah. I mean, it's the sort of stuff you, you can't imagine today. And on top of that, they gave the West Indies who lost the series, but made so many friends because of the way they played the game, a ticker tape parade through Melbourne before they went home. So uh, it's worth getting out the uh, archival footage of that. Um, it, it's somewhere around. I'm sure it's on YouTube. It's good stuff. So there we go. I, I can't remember where we started this, but um, <laughs> it just keeps going. Um, you've been able to watch some of the biggest names in cricket go about it over your time. Is there anyone that stands out as the most enjoyable to watch? Um, well, Brian Lara's batting 
Yeah, Brian Lara, he's on another plane. Uh, and there have been some great players, obviously. Um, but he's the one who stands out. Uh, and, and I say that with due respect of a guy like Gary Sobers, who was also brilliant and exceptional. But perhaps because I saw more of Lara batting, given the fact there's been a lot more of him than Sobers playing Test cricket over the years. Uh, just extraordinary skill and, and talent. And uh, with the ball, well, it's hard to beat Warren, isn't it? Uh, Warren has been the, the the greatest bowler, certainly of his type, if not overall, that we've, we've ever seen. Uh, who could turn a leg break like that and do it with so much control? And um, you know, coupled with his, uh, his personality and representations to the umpire and the rest of it, it's quite a package. Um, so, yeah. Bowler and batsman, those those two stand out. But there are plenty of others who've made the game worth watching. And Adam Gilchrist to be one of those when it comes to any time that he came out to bat. You had to move towards the edge of your seat because you knew uh, if you got past naught, look out. He was uh, superb to watch. And there have been great other great bowlers. Uh, Lily in, in particular, Kirtley Ambrose. I mean, I remember watching Wes Hall pushing off a side screen. Don't think you'd see that today. And he was spectacular, not only with his bowling, but I have to say his batting for a lower order play, it was something out of Buster Keaton watching him bat. No one could play and miss the ball with more Elan than, uh, than Wes Hall. Very, very funny. But um, yeah. So look, um, we'll say Lara and, and Warren, and uh, you can talk about a few others if you like, but I think they stand out for very obvious reasons. Do you have a favorite moment or piece of your own commentary? One that stands out would be your Cole of Warren 700 wicket. All oh, right, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably more when I put my foot in my mouth and uh, there's, one I, there's, one, there's one I do remember because um, unlike some of my colleagues who, um, and, and fair enough, it's a, it's a way to go. I could be accused of laziness comparatively. They, they see something as likely to happen and they think about what they're going to do, but I just let it rip most of the time. The one I do remember, and it was just instinctive at the moment, was when uh, Michael Clark scored a triple century against India at the SCG. And all of a sudden, just watching, it just hit me. I said, well, something like, and well, may the audience applaud because they will probably never in their lifetime see anything like this again. It's never happened before. It's hard to imagine that it's going to happen again. Uh, that sort of stuff. Um, it, it was a, a, a significant moment. You think old Ari Foster's 287 had stood on the scoreboard there for 100 years as the, the record, and no one had got a, a triple. And, um, well, how much more test cricket are we going to, going to see? Hopefully a lot. Uh, and the opportunity for someone to, to do that. So, so little things like that come up. But, you know, I've been lucky enough to be on air at the end of uh, some test matches that have been very ex exciting in the way they finished. The one at Edgbaston uh, comes to mind. I think the one in South Africa, which a lot of people would forget, was just after we lost at Edgbaston the next year. We beat um, South Africa by two wickets in Johannesburg with Justin Langer allegedly padded up in the shed after he'd been whacked in the head by Antini and wasn't supposed to bat. And it was actually Leon Kasprovich that got Australia home, having been able to do it at Edgbaston. So, so that was memorable. Um, oh, the list goes on. Um, foot, foot and mouth, yes. This is a very, very good one. Of, um, <laughs> uh, who was it? I can't even remember who was bad. It was in Hobart. I, I said he's out. Bold. No, he wasn't bold. Oh, he stumped. No, no, no. He was caught. And look, and just balls it up for some reason. Um, so, 
it's the mistakes that linger more in the brain than the, the good moments, I suppose. Uh, but hopefully there will be too many, too many of those. But uh, look, uh, I'll tell you, one of the great experiences is to be a broadcaster at places like Eden Gardens and Calcutta, uh, in Calcutta and um, Mumbai, Delhi, when there's a crowd. God, the atmosphere. And that game in 2001, when uh, Laxman and, and Dravid played so well, Laxman in particular. Uh, Warren didn't, didn't bowl badly. It's just that Laxman was, was too good, which is one of the reasons why Bradman was um, you know, a phenomenon in the game, because uh, we all know how bowlers can demoralise batting sides with their skill, but... When batsmen do it, a la Lara, who I mentioned, or Tendulkar Ponting, but Bradman, he demoralised opposing attacks to the point that they, you know, tried to restrict him by coming up with body line. But um, that's how good, good he was. So that is quite something to watch when all of a sudden, like Ben Stokes last year, um, the opposition have no answer to someone batting in such a brilliant way. And, and that's compelling to watch in a game of cricket, yeah. So you had a funny moment during the Brisbane Test last year where Chris Rogers might have caught you out, perhaps drifting off to sleep. Um, can you take us through that one? Oh, that's right. <laughs> what happened What happened there? You'll have to remind me, there's always something going on with Chris. Always pulling his leg or whatever. My, my wife bought one of those Christmas things that, you know, you shake and it's got snow in it. Yeah. And then she got a photo of Chris and she put it in. <laughs> 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 oh, God. I can't remember. I've, I may have fallen asleep. Uh, <laughs> the cricket must have been dire. Well, I think um, you weren't you on have commentary. You'll to remind me what happened. I'm fairly sure it was Chris... And I'm not sure who the other one, but you were off commentary, but you were sitting next to him and you may, I think yes. he caught you maybe drifting off to sleep. Yes, yeah. But, but I think somewhere in there, there'd been a bit of a play on, play on words, a double entendre to do, to do with, to do with some, something in the game. And um, oh, I'm just trying to remember what it was. Um, yeah, he didn't really jump all over it. He, it was like he, he was he was taken aback. He didn't get the joke, so he was a bit serious. Um, but I think he'll be working on air this summer. It sounds like he hasn't got a gig at the moment, following his uh, exit from that Cricket Australia job. But I hope he finds another another spot. Good man, Chris. Good man. They should have been playing him a lot earlier, but um, yeah, that's how it went. Yes. Sorry, no, I can't remember the detail of it, but I know it was one of those risque moments and I threw him a line and he didn't bite, didn't take the bait. That's right. You're asleep. Not you that. probably wouldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, have been, I have been known to go to, to, to sleep <laughs> lately and um, I think some of my predecessors did the same when they, they, got, they got to seniority. Yeah. Oh, uh, well... Pakistan didn't play very impressive cricket last summer, so we can't really. Oh, they didn't. They did. They didn't turn up. Let's face it. They did not turn up. Nor did New Zealand. No. Um, the bowl tampering saga obviously was massive back in 2018. Can you take us through how you felt and your views on that at the time and in the aftermath? Well. <laughs> I have a bit of a running joke about it, to be honest. I mean, we we have moved on, and uh, it was clearly poor judgment on the part of those who were involved, particularly the captain. What I do remember is this: about um, an hour before it happened, I was talking to Mark Nicholas off air. He was working on South African TV, and I said, "What do you think of Smith?" And he said, "Oh, he's very immature. Look, look at the way he deals with the uh, referrals." And, a few other aspects. He's very good cricketer, but he's immature. And, you know, there we were looking at this ridiculous business, um, which 
he was he was aware something was going on, and if he was a strong captain, he would have jumped on it and stopped it, but he didn't. Um, and then to rather than take the advice, come back tomorrow and speak about it, he decided to take one for the team at that press conference where they came up with the, the bullshit thing about Velcro. But I, I when I talk to my English friends, because you don't, don't want to let them get away with anything, I blame Ian Gould, you see. There's three English umpires officiating. Gould's up in the box. So, obviously, there's something going on. And uh, he gets on the the tic-tac to along, uh, Nigel Long uh, about what he has seen. But he doesn't convey all the information. What he should have said uh, when Long interrogated uh, the, uh, the whippersnapper Bancroft about um, you know, what's in his pockets and the empty in his pockets, he should have got on the two-way and said, it's not in his pockets, it's in his strides. Get him to drop his jacks. That's where the evidence is. <laughs> In his axe. Uh, so I, I had to run a stump the other day, and Ian Gould was on, so we had we had a good laugh about all all of that. But you know, if, if that had happened, if there'd been an expose there, and then we probably wouldn't have had so much nonsense going on um, as as we did. Well, when you know, Malcolm Turnbull knew nothing about cricket, uh, he's jumping up and down and carrying on to Cricket Australia. You've got to do this and that. It's humiliating. Um, yeah, and it, it, it was badly, badly handled by the, the team. And, and, and Darren Lehman must have known what was going on. He fell on his sword quick smart. Um, and then um, we had the wonderful review, didn't we, of Cricket Australia and their ethical or lack of it behaviour and so on. And uh, we've now got to a point by accident with Tim Payne in charge where the Australian team seem, seems to be more settled and, and certainly playing some very good cricket than it was when Smith was there. And the only thing that's unsettled in the game is the people who are running it. Um, they're all over the place. Hopefully they get their act together and you know, when we get to playing cricket again, uh, we get more of Tim Payne's sensible leadership uh, for another year or two, and then that will be interesting. I don't, I don't know whether Smith will be captain again. Um, the frightening thing around all this, of course, is you make a comparison to what Ben Stokes was involved with being charged with a fray over that incident in a pub. And here he is captaining England. Interesting. And, and David Warner, we're clearly complicit in a lot of this stuff. What's he, he get? He gets a life ban as a leader. Um, yeah. I'm, I wonder how often he wakes up and thinks, I should have taken Cricket Australia to court. And if you ask anyone around town, they said, if Warner had taken him on, he, he probably would have won. But at the time, it was going to be a bad look and, and all the rest of it. So he, did, he just copped it. So the sandpaper thing was regrettable. But um, as I say, um, sometimes you need to make mistakes in order, in order to get ahead. And it seems as if Australia has now put that behind. Uh, one respect from the fans and one respect from, from themselves, I, I would imagine, after their performances um, in the Ashes series and, and last summer. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned last year. It was a pretty exciting time in cricket with the World Cup and the Ashes in England. Um, what were your thoughts on Australia's performance throughout that period and what was it like to be a part of that sort of time? Well, it's always, it's always a thrill to be watching cricket in England. Uh, I'd love to be there now, um, although probably not with all these restrictions. But an English summer is just, just fantastic. When, when the weather's good, there's, there's nothing better. And uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to be over there a number of times to watch cricket on, to play years ago. Um, and yes, the, the World Cup went off extraordinarily well. And Australia, unfortunately, um, they just, they lost their momentum. And that South African game leading up to the semi-finals that cost them because losing it meant they had to play England. And there was always a chance that the you know, win-toss, win-game on good pitches 
and uh, we got we got smoked. But you know, it was a, it was a one, wonderful tournament, well attended, and it ended up being on free to air TV at the end in England, which was a godsend. And um, somehow England won. But they didn't actually win the match, did they? Anyway, they won. <laughs> they won the trophy. Um, and, and good luck to them for that. And then the Ashes, well, it, it had a, the whole lot, didn't it, at various stages. With Smith's wonderful batting, Ben Stokes' brilliance at Headingley, and Pat Cummins' uh, ex- extraordinary skill uh, and durability as a, as, as a fast bowler. So there was a lot of drama wrapped around that series, as there tends to be, uh, particularly in England, when we have an Ashes series. I don't think there's any doubt that Jig's ball, English pitches, produces the best test cricket. Bowlers are always in the game. There's just a little bit of unevenness or the ball swings, seems around a bit more so than in Australia, where most of the time the pitches are just too flat. But, um, yeah, there's... England is is the home of cricket as much as Lords might be as the ground that's the home of cricket, but uh, that's why an Ashes series is is so memorable. And that was a, a very memorable three or four months spent watching cricket in England. Fantastic. And that whole period was obviously well documented in a literal sense in the documentary The Test. Did you watch that? And if so, how did you see that? I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. It's it's on my list, my my bucket list. But I've, I've been watching a lot of other stuff. Everyone tells me it's good and and, and the rest of it. Yeah, well, it's a great idea. Um, so um, no, I I can't offer any opinion on it. Um, but um, I'll, I'll get around to it at, at some stage. But the players seem to be happy with what um, they did with that documentary, and I think it gave from what I'm hearing, that the fans uh, uh, a, a sense of uh, the drama that was unfolding in the dressing room and, and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, they, they probably picked the right series and the right people with Justin Langer being the coach of, of the side. So he, he, he brings a bit of emotion to the table. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah I'll, get, I'll get around to it. Thanks for reminding me. Uh, definitely, right. it definitely made an impact with, I think, the AFL are following suit with um, Amazon following a few players around. So, yeah. Haven't got much to show at the moment. Yeah, well, true. No. When's the next AFL game going to be played in Victoria? Do we know? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no one knows. Yeah. See, the horses are still racing. <laughs> Lucky. <laughs> they don't stop. No, definitely not. Um, yeah. You brought up a special milestone in the past year or so when you commentated your 300th test match on radio. Mm-hmm. How special is this achievement and what does it mean to have been involved with the sport for so long? Well, it was a, it was a nice milestone. It was the MCG. In fact, the 200th was at the MCG. So that seems one way or another to be a to become the spot. Well, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think to myself when these things happen, is this, a, is this the time to switch off and uh, get on your horse and head west uh, or, or not? So um, I, look, I look back at uh, so many experiences with, uh, you know, as I mentioned, O'Keefe and uh, Roebuck, but, you know, Aisha Bogley, Tony Cozy, Jonathan Agnew. There's so many uh, memorable former players and commentators that uh, I've been with and had the opportunity to go to places I would never have gone to if it wasn't for cricket. Like the West Indies, I think I went there about eight, eight times. And hopefully they are rejuvenating over there. That uh, That's disappointing what's been happening. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's just full of the most extraordinary memories of cricket matches and um, meeting meeting people who have got a sense of humour and uh, giving me the chance to, to kind of see the world, certainly the cricket world. So I've been very fortunate. But um, uh, I'm a bit West Indian these days, I'll put it that way. I just um, take it as it comes, take it as it comes. And, and that's because... 
uh, to a, a large extent um, when I had this uh, stroke in 2016, it kind of changed my uh, attitude towards things because um, I won't say it was a near death experience, but it was a bit frightening. So it made me realize even more that um, uh, I'm not, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm mortal like all of us but there's a there's a time in life where you're ripping along and you're thinking this and that about uh, how indestructible you might be and then something happens and you think right okay just make it all worthwhile but remember you never know when things are gonna go wrong so um i don't know i might get to what am i up to now 313 i think so th th there might be another series or two and uh, i'm i'm sure that'll be just as memorable as um most of most of the last 35 40 years have been yeah definitely and just finally how have you seen the way that coronavirus has impacted cricket and what do you think it'll mean for the upcoming summer against india well it'll be disastrous if uh, the second wave they're talking about comes back and bangs us on the head because uh, how will anyone come to the country? So you just have to hope that uh, we get to a point where these restrictions, uh, the impact of uh, coronavirus will, will start wearing off um, before the cricket season. I mean, cricket has been very fortunate so far in this country to have been out of season. Um, not so football, although rugby league's done am uh, amazingly well. Um, uh, been a bit lucky there, I suppose. And um, yeah, we look, we live in a world of uncertainty in so many ways economically uh, and in terms of um, the overall health of, uh, of the world. So um, it's, it's hard to forecast what is going to happen. But um, if you're not optimistic, you're dead. So let's look forward to the Border Gavaska series. That'll uplift us. Definitely. Well, that's all we've got for you, Jim. We can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, we congratulate you on all you've achieved in your life and career so far. And thanks for joining us today. Riley and Ben, thank you very much for having me on the show. Good luck with whatever you're going to do with your lives from here. And um, hopefully you'll be doing it without um, even a common cold affecting you. We hope so. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Righto. great. There you have it. That's another episode of the podcast. Once again, we thanked him for his time. It was an incredible insight into his journey as a sports journalist. Uh, we thank Matt Clinch for helping us get Jim on, who was obviously on earlier in the show. And stay tuned for some more episodes in the future.